Welcome to the 219th episode of the 4th and 24 podcast with Patrick Winograd. I'm your host, Randy Winograd. In this edition of the podcast, our topics are an overview of Patrick's weekend predictions and our weekly look at Major League Baseball. So let's jump right in with a look back at Patrick's weekend predictions, which are posted every Thursday on our website, 4thand24.com. We will start with Major League Baseball, where Patrick went 1-3 in his Major League Baseball weekend series predictions. And in the Women's World Cup Soccer Tournament, Patrick went 4-0 with his predictions. That means Patrick went 5-3 combined this week. That brings him to a 765 and 510 overall record. Dead on 60% winning percentage, at least when you round to only uh, one decimal place. Patrick, your thoughts for this weekend's predictions? Well, actually, this week it did get exactly to 60%. There is no rounding. That is the number somehow. That's hard to do, but apparently I did it. Um, pulled it off successfully. But... Um, not really the goal. Would like to be higher, but I don't really care. It's good enough for now. Uh, but going back to Friday in MLB, like you said, a one in three weeks, so not the greatest. But um, I looked at the Diamondbacks and the Twins before the weekend. I, I, I thought about, do I even predict these two teams? They're kind of bad recently. The Twins had won a series against the Cardinals, but the Cardinals aren't very good. The Diamondbacks had just taken a game from the Giants, but lost the last three games of the series. But both of these teams... We're struggling mightily heading into the series, so it was really hard to just make a pick and decide who 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 would win that series. I really had no read on it whatsoever. Uh, the Diamondbacks were 2-4 and four in their last six games, and the Twins had come off, yes, winning that series against the Cardinals, but the series before that, they were swept by the Royals and then had lost their prior two to the Mariners before that, so they were 2-5, and five, sorry, 2-6 and six in their last eight. So two really not... <laughs> Two really not informed, to use the soccer uh, term, uh, teams at the moment. So very hard to come up with that prediction. I ended up picking the Diamondbacks. Uh, that went wrong. Uh, the Twins won game one, three to two on Friday. They won 12 to one on Saturday. And then on Sunday, they had the lead pretty much the entire game. They were up one to nothing in the fifth. Uh, they went down two to one in the sixth, but then they tied it up in the seventh. And then they took the lead with a Christian Walker home run. Uh, three to two. That was their lead at at the end of the ninth, or the top of the end of the top of the ninth, I should say. Uh, but then, new addition, Paul Seawald from the trade deadline. I have my thoughts on this trade, but I'll get to that in a second. Came in, he got zero outs, gave up a walk and two home runs, one solo home run and one two run home run, and all of a sudden, uh, the game was over. Minnesota had walked it off five to three in the bottom of the ninth. So the Diamondbacks lost that series. They got swept. Then you have the Cubs and the Braves. This is the exact opposite of the Diamondbacks and the Twins series. Two of the hottest, if not the two hottest teams in baseball. Uh, very hard to predict this one. Good pitching matchups. Max Fried was coming off the IL. That was a wild card to see how he might do. Uh, he ended up pitching six innings of three-hit shutout ball with eight strikeouts. The Braves would go on to win on Friday, 8 to nothing, as a result of that start. Uh, but then it was Bryce Elder on the mound who... Was one of the ERA leaders for most of the year, but has had some really, really rough starts recently. Um, and that that stat sheet doesn't look as kind, but I think the Cubs had a TBD starter. If not, Javier Assad was, he's not really exactly your typical starter anyway, more of a long relief guy. So I, I picked the Braves in this series, and they won the first game, then they lost the second one 8-6. to six. Something that you rarely say for the Braves, they actually just didn't get the run support. Well... I don't know. It's hard to say they didn't get the run support when they got six runs and four runs in the games they lost, but the fact of the matter is, normally if you're going to get into, you know, kind of a Big 12-style shootout with the Braves, you're going to be on the losing end of it. 
Um, but this weekend, the Cubs proved that that's their style of game, and that's what we know because the Cubs are, I think they've scored 100, heading into the weekend, they had 165 runs since the All-Star break, which is more than any other team by more than 40 runs. Uh, and they put up 36 runs in two games earlier this week. So that is their style. Um, and they got eight runs, uh, five-run first inning for them, two homers in the inning. Uh, so a lot of uh, just a lot of success very, very early on in the game. Uh, and then just continuing to get it as the Braves tried to surge back, kept adding on because the Braves actually did get to six. So the five first inning runs wouldn't have held up as a lead, but they kept adding on. And as a result of that, they get the eight to six win. And then on Sunday, that was when the Braves had the, sorry, the Cubs had the clear pitching advantage, Justin Steele on the mound, Cy Young candidate against Charlie Morton. Uh, As soon as the Cubs had won game two in kind of a shootout, I had a feeling that they would probably win the series. But I had picked the Braves, both of these teams very hot, though, coming into the week, um, or weekend, I should say, and we'll talk about that later, especially with the Cubs. Then you have the Blue Jays who swept the Red Sox. Honestly, I had picked the Blue Jays against the Red Sox so many times before, and the Blue Jays were 0-7 against the Red Sox this season. So I figured, you know what? If the Red Sox just have their number, kind of like the Dodgers do with the Padres and have for years now, at some point you got to stop being stubborn and just pick a team that might not be the better team, but that just is able to beat the other team very easily. And then, of course, the one time I actually picked the Red Sox, they get swept um, at home by the Blue Jays. So that one's really unfortunate. Can't really complain too much about that. But uh, Toronto, just getting a lot of offense, honestly. They got seven runs in the first game, five in the second, 13 in the last game. Red Sox failed to score more than four in any game of the series. Uh, so there's not even a point where you can switch around the run totals and they would scrape out a game. They just don't. That they don't have enough run support, uh, at least in the series they didn't. And then you have the Rangers, who made two comeback victories to beat the Marlins. Won the first game six to two after going down one to nothing, and then two to one. Um, and then they shut out the Marlins for the rest of the game in Jordan Montgomery's debut for the Rangers, uh, the second pitching debut of the week for them. That we'll get to the rest of that later. And then on Saturday, the Marlins took a five to nothing lead in the fourth inning, and by the end of the fifth, the Rangers were up seven to five. Uh, and that was the end of the series as they ended up winning that game 9-8 despite giving up a two-run home run in the top of the ninth to new addition Jake Berger to the Marlins. And then on Sunday, uh, it was Andrew Heaney's day, out-dueling Sandy Alcantara, the NL Cy Young winner from last year. Heaney pitching five and two-thirds of shutout baseball, four hits allowed, two walks. Sandy, six innings pitch, six hits, four runs. Can't really blame him. This offense is ridiculous. Um, but four homers on the day for Texas. Uh, there were three of those off of Sandy, one of them off the bullpen. And as a result, Texas wins that game six to nothing. The Marlins continue their tumble. And I got that prediction right, though. So that's positive. And then in the Women's World Cup, I'll talk a little bit more about the actual uh, overall standings going on there, too. We're in the round of 16 now. You had Switzerland and Spain. Switzerland had yet to concede a goal in the entire World Cup before this matchup. Their only problem is they had scored only two, and that was in their match against the Philippines. Uh, And if you look at it even before the World Cup had started, even in their friendly against Morocco, they failed to score and had a 0-0 draw. Uh, They drew 3-3 against Zambia in in another friendly before that, but just no offense really for Switzerland. They got the two goals against the Philippines to get the win. And then they had their tie against North uh, against Norway. I almost said North Carolina. I'm getting ready for football season. Um, they had their tie against Norway. They had their tie against New Zealand. But 0-0 ties in both of those games. Yes, they know they don't concede. That's very, very positive for them. But the problem was they just weren't. It's not like 
winning the group didn't matter to them, and in the end, came back and backfired because uh, with the five points, although they did win the group, they ended up with a tough matchup uh, facing a team from really what, at this point in the tournament, probably has the two best teams remaining, uh, which was Group C that had Japan and Spain, in my opinion, and I'll get to it in a second, Japan's the best team in this tournament. Um, And Spain, right now, they went and took the team who had conceded zero goals, and they scored five on them, and five quick goals uh, for Spain. Started off by scoring in the fifth minute, got another one in the 17th, and the 36th, and the 45th. So four first-half goals for Spain, and Switzerland's only goal in this game, might I add, was an own goal by Spain that wasn't really, I mean, it wasn't really a, a pressure, too much of a pressured play anyway. It was just, just really honestly just a mistake. It was the definition of an own goal. It wasn't really much of a deflection or anything like that. Um, so Spain really dominated this game, especially offensively. Super impressive showing after. They didn't have the strongest group, show, group showing to anybody because they lost that game 4 to nothing to Japan. Um, but Japan advanced on an 11 no on an 11 to 0 goal differential uh, and they continued that momentum forward as they beat Norway 3 to 1 Norway had looked okay had a really bad first match uh, that they dropped that they really weren't supposed to ended up scraping by in the group and advancing uh, but they lost to New Zealand when they weren't supposed to they had that draw against Switzerland and then they won 6 to nothing against the Philippines to get their goal differential up above New Zealand's enough to advance uh, but Norway not really showing that improved form at all that they would have needed to advance. Japan, three goals on them. Uh, and if you want to talk about that team, it's just goals galore. Their last friendly heading into the World Cup was 5 to nothing over Panama, who made it to the World Cup. Their first game in the group stage was a 5 to nothing victory. Their second game was a 2 to nothing victory over Costa Rica. Their third game was a 4 to nothing victory against world number 2 Spain. And then, in the knockout rounds, they put up three on Japan. And they end up win, or sorry, Japan puts up three on Norway, excuse me, and they end up winning three to one. Um, I would have to say that they are probably the favorites in this tournament. They've just played really, really well. As I said, they beat the world number two. Uh, they're facing the world number three now in the quarterfinals as a result of another result that we will talk about in a second. Uh, but with the USA out, and I'll get to that, they I don't really see a team that honestly has a better history, uh, has the pedigree to win it all. I mean, this team was. This team in 2015, two World Cups ago, they were facing the U.S. for the title game, uh, and they did pretty well in that game. I think the U.S. ended up winning that. The U.S. did end up winning that one, obviously, um, and then went on to beat the Netherlands in 2019, who, speaking of the Netherlands, they also won their game, and I'll talk about that in a second. But really, those are the last two runner-ups, and then you have the U.S., and now that the U.S. is out, really, you got to look at the team that beat the U.S., the team that was the runner-up the year before, and the team that was the runner-up two tournaments ago that has a great history as well, and that is Japan. But speaking of the Netherlands, they also played on Saturday night, Saturday in the middle of the morning, whatever you want to call it. Um, they beat South Africa 2 to nothing. South Africa had a great story to get here, but the Netherlands were just too much. I will say that if the U.S. had been able to play the style of game they did against Sweden against South Africa, it would have been more than a 2 to nothing defeat. Uh, for the South Africans, but unfortunately, the U.S. did not get that opportunity because they kind of played themselves out of the tournament in the group stage. They didn't come out with enough intensity, and as a result, they drew the toughest matchup they probably they potentially could have, that being Sweden. Uh, they played their best game of the tournament, but it wasn't enough. Sweden was able to have a ridiculous performance by their goalie, Musevic, and as a result, USA had a lot of great scoring chances, a lot of opportunities to win this game, a lot of missed opportunities as well. 
And in the end, it ends 0-0, so for betters, it's actually a tie, which is funny because that's actually... That, no team was actually the favorite in this match, which I was talking about with you, how unusual it is to see a sporting event that doesn't have a favorite. But in the end, Vegas was right. Uh, nobody did win the game, so they were right. Uh, but Sweden advances 5-4 to four on penalties after the U.S. has three different shots, missed the frame entirely. Out of seven shots, four goals, zero saves, three misses. U.S. had one save and in heartbreaking fashion... Uh, a ball that was saved by Alyssa Nair that actually rebounded back in midair and came over the goal by about, I don't know, maybe a centimeter or two. And that is what sends Sweden forward. Um, and by the way, Alyssa Nair was clearly the player of the match for me with the with the U.S. Maybe if it wasn't her, it was Trinity Rodman because Nair actually scored one of the penalty goals for the U.S. as well after the U.S. started missing some of those. Um, so, I mean, really got to feel bad for a few players on that squad. Uh, Julie Ertz, who's retiring. Um, now after that World Cup, we'll see what happens with Alex Morgan. She did say she's not retiring, but you never know if people want to go back and change their minds. It was obviously the last one for Megan Rapinoe as well. And it really is the end of an era. I mean, the U.S. had a lot of players, had a few players that were injured. Uh, I will say that they were held back by a, I won't, I won't use any strong adjectives, but held back by a terrible coaching job. I think the substitutions were kind of off the whole time. I think that he made, uh, Coach Vlatko Antonovsky made two subs in the 120th minute and used one of them to shoot penalties, which doesn't really make any sense because why would you sub them if they're not even going to actually shoot until the seventh goal or the seventh shot if you're talking about Kelly O'Hara and then that shot was a miss anyway. So not really the strongest coaching performance either. Um, That's my comments on the U.S. I mean, they did really play their best game. In the final game, they saved their best for last, but unfortunately, Sweden had an individual performance more than what the U.S. did as a team with their goalie, and as a result, they were able to stall the game out, put it to penalties, and then now you really look at it where the U.S. were the clear favorites before, during the group stage, that line started to get a little closer, but now all of a sudden, you have Sweden in the mix. Sweden also, by the way, has a history of ending the U.S.'s runs. They beat them in the Olympics twice in a row now, and also in this tournament, so... Credit to Sweden for cracking the U.S. code that nobody else has been able to crack. Uh, but then you have the Netherlands, who obviously played a great match against the U.S. They will be heading up against Spain, I believe, in the quarterfinals. That'll be an interesting matchup. Then you have Spain themselves, who have played a really great tournament, the highest remaining ranked team. But Spain lost a game 4 to nothing to Japan. So in my opinion, you got to go with Japan based on form. But if you're going off of history and form, Japan's up there, Spain is up there, and I think Sweden... Has to be in that mix as well. Um, but we'll see what happens in the rest of the tournament. It's been a really exciting tournament so far. I would be, I will say, I will. I would be shocked if the winner did not come from the side of the bracket that has been playing the round of 16 so far. I really don't think that even England or Denmark or France has what it takes to match up with the likes of Sweden, with the likes of Spain, Japan. I don't think that's, I don't think that's possible. Um, just, I just don't think it's possible, frankly. I don't really know what else to say about it, but... It should be an interesting quarterfinals and semifinals. Regardless, I mean, I I will say, I don't even think Sweden is the best team on this side, and they already beat the tournament favorites, so you could argue the five best teams left over in the round of 16 were all on one side. Um, And in the end, that led to this uh, result that we have with Spain matching up against the Netherlands next Thursday and Japan matching up against Sweden. I'll be predicting all of those quarterfinal matches um, next week, but it's been an interesting tournament so far. I've been excited to watch it, and uh, that's my comments on that one. All right, a uh, little bit extra look at the actual game action there on Women's World Cup from 
Patrick's uh, weekend prediction overview, Patrick's predictions for next weekend, including those World Cup predictions, and obviously it'll be Major League Baseball uh, weekend series predictions. We're still a few weeks away from college football. Uh, those predictions will be posted on our website next Thursday. Let's now turn our attention to Major League Baseball with our weekly review of MLB action, starting as always in the American League East. Yes, we will start in the AL East, as always, with the Baltimore Orioles, who have been leading the division for maybe four or five weeks in a row at this point. Uh, It looks like they will continue to do that, despite the fact that the Rays have started to turn the corner again, start to play better baseball, um, and have made some improvements at the trade deadline. But the Orioles made some improvements of their own. Uh, They are 8-2 in their last 10. They have won four in a row, 70-42 the second team to 70 wins. The Braves did get there first, but now all of a sudden, the Orioles look like they might challenge the Braves for the best record in baseball. They are only one and a half games back of doing that uh, right now. So a larger separation between the Orioles and the Rays than there is between the Orioles and the Braves, something that didn't seem like it was going to happen up to maybe six weeks ago where it felt like the Braves and the Rays were running away with it and the Rays were just still head and shoulders above the rest, um, and maybe Texas to an extent too. But now all of a sudden, that has kind of changed, and I think we are starting to see though that there are there are a clear in my favor in my in my mind six teams that are kind of above the rest. Um, I think you look at Atlanta. I think you look at Baltimore. I think you look at Tampa Bay, Texas, Houston, and L.A. And I think if one of those six teams doesn't win the World Series, it, it's it's a big big upset. I don't see any of the teams outside of it. I mean, you look right outside of that bubble. Yes, you have Toronto. I'm not. I'm not convinced of their pitching staff being uh, a playoff pitching staff to that level. And also, last year they couldn't even make it past the Mariners, who were obliterated by the Astros immediately after. Um, you look at San Francisco; they couldn't get past the Dodgers when they had a franchise record in wins. This team is not that team. It is not as good. It does not have Kevin Gosman. It didn't. They did not make significant improvements like they did that year at the deadline by getting Chris Bryant. They don't have the players with postseason experience like they did back then. Buster Posey is gone. Uh, Brandon Belt is on the Blue Jays now. I guess you could say the Phillies maybe could join that group, but I don't see it happening. Uh, we can keep going on and on about this. But um, at least the AL East definitely has two of those teams, potentially three if you throw the Blue Jays in there. I wouldn't, frankly. But uh, the Rays, like I said, 68-46, and 46, three games back. Uh, they got Aaron Savali at the deadline. That was their big acquisition, sending back their number four overall prospect. Uh, in the trade, that being Kyle Manzardo, the prospect. Um, And then Baltimore, I I forgot to mention, they got Jack Flaherty, and he had a very, very strong first start for Baltimore against the Blue Jays. So a very strong start against a divisional opponent. Six innings, four hits, given up only one run, uh, and eight strikeouts in those six innings. So he outduels Kevin Gosman for for the Orioles, and they are able to advance again, I still am not convinced of this Orioles pitching staff, but if Flaherty is going to pitch like the ace that we know he has the talent to be like, I'm a little bit more I'm a little bit more optimistic about it. I don't think that there's still a pitcher or two away because I think that the reality is at least one of the four pitchers that are, you know, average, probably slightly above average pitchers, for one of them to pitch like an ace in the postseason would not be that surprising. I mean, no offense to him, he's he's been in, around for a while, but Rich Hill has pitched like a Cy Young pitcher in the World Series before for the Dodgers after, you know, just cruising throughout the season, 3-5, three, three, something like that, ERA, and then just comes up huge in the postseason. So you never know what can happen. Guys can get on runs um, like that, and I do think that the Orioles can probably find one of those pitchers to be dominant enough that their, that their lineup can back that up. 
Um, but then you have the Rays. I think their pitching staff is still probably the strongest part of their team despite all the injuries. Uh, their lineup has been good, but not a little bit more shaky recently. Um, but then I'll get off of the topic of the Orioles and the Rays. Those two are pretty secure at the top. You have the Toronto Blue Jays. They did something very, very important this weekend. They put a lot of distance in between them and Boston. Headed into the weekend, only two games up on Boston, who was the first team out of the wild card behind them. With the sweep of Boston, they are now five games back. The Yankees are four and a half back. Spoiler alert for the rest of the division. Um, and then it's just Seattle who's challenging for that final playoff spot. They're playing really good baseball right now, and I'll talk about that later. But Toronto is still in position as is, um, and one game back of Houston for that second wild card spot. So Toronto playing good baseball recently. They've won three in a row, six and four in their last ten. And then at the bottom of the division, not so great baseball being played between the two that normally enter the year as the division favorites, the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox. Yankees at 58 and 54. Red Sox at 57 and 54. Yes, Aaron Judge is back, but now Anthony Rizzo is gone. The lineup overall is just not exactly, uh, it's just not quality enough. And Aaron Judge has not been the Aaron Judge of old uh, since he's come back, which is, I mean, that's hard to do, obviously, especially when they rushed him back from an injury. But the fact of the matter is, he is 2 for 16 in August, uh, was 3 for 7 in July on his when he came back, but all three of those hits came in one game against Baltimore. So you take out that game uh, from his ledger, and he's 2 for 18 since coming back with only one walk as well. Or, sorry, with seven walks, but most of those coming uh, in games against Tampa Bay and Baltimore in that crazy July that he had for three games. But look, if he's not going at a ridiculous level, and it's, again, it's not Aaron Judge's fault at all, but... If he's not going at an all-star, all-world level, really, the Yankees just have no shot because the rest of this team is just not that good. They're not good enough to lift up um, the rest of the team. Judge really carried that team on his back all of last year to have them do anything, and all of a sudden this year, this roster is probably worse on paper. Um, their pitching staff is probably worse, and the fact of the matter is they are, they've had more injuries, and they've had an injury to Aaron Judge, and I just don't think that they can make up for that. Uh, so the Yankees not playing too well. And then you have the Red Sox, who every time it feels like they're contending, they're about to make their jump into the postseason and put themselves in prime position. They just have a few series where not everything clicks, and all of a sudden they're a few games back, and I'm just starting to lose confidence in this team uh, to be a legit challenger for the postseason. I, I think roster-wise, they're not up there with the other three teams that are in position currently, that, those being the Rays, the Astros, and the Blue Jays. Uh, and then you have the fact that the Mariners just took a series from them. I don't think that the Yankees are actually better than the Red Sox at this point in the season, but I, I think there's a chance that the Angels could be better if they are able to kind of get their stuff together, get Trout back from the IL. So I don't really know what the Red Sox path is to the postseason. I don't think their deadline was that bad, uh, though, I will say, because they really didn't do that much, kind of just retinkering moves and things that wouldn't run up the salary, wouldn't cost them too many prospects. Meanwhile, the Yankees did nothing at all. They made one trade for my, for a reliever, and they don't need relievers anyway. Um, and then the Blue Jays, they made a lot of trades for relievers up and down the roster. And I think they made like six or seven trades with the Cardinals, but that's a different story. Okay, let's move over to your favorite division in the American League, the Central. Well, this is the division that really was weird at the trade deadline. Uh, the Tigers forgot to trade away their best pitcher and got nothing for him. The Twins... Literally pretty much did nothing. They traded Pablo Lopez for Dylan Floro uh, for, I mean, a trade of two guys with a 4.5 and a 4.7-ish ERA out of the bullpen. 
I guess one team believing that they can fix him with their look, use him better uh, than the other, and same way, vice versa. But the reality is, it's an odd trade. I'll just leave it like that. Minnesota and Miami have made a few odd trades, frankly, um, as uh, they, or excuse me, not Pablo Lopez, Jorge Lopez, my bad. Um, but Minnesota, speaking of Pablo Lopez, at the beginning of the season, traded Luis Arias away for Pablo Lopez. And that that trade, I mean, it's hard to evaluate who won that because Pablo Lopez is one of the American League leaders in strikeouts and is having a great season for the Twins. And the Twins are winning and they're in the lead in the division. And then Luis Arias is chasing 400. So, I mean, I would say the Marlins probably won the trade. But at the same time, the Twins have done some weird stuff. But really what they did was just stand pat and watch the other teams crumble at the deadline. Uh, they knew the Tigers weren't going to make their team better. They knew the White Sox weren't going to make their team better. Uh, but the real surprise here was that Cleveland really didn't do anything to upgrade their roster. They traded away Aaron Savali to the Rays. So they actually downgraded their roster. Uh, they traded Josh Bell to the Marlins. And I just, I don't know why they, in this year with this tight of a divisional race, they decided to pull out of it. And now, if you were watching over the weekend, Jose Ramirez and Tim Anderson got into a fight. So now they're not going to have Jose Ramirez for a few games because he's likely going to be suspended. Maybe some other players as well. I think Josh Naylor is injured as well. Shane Bieber's on the 60-day IL. I guess that's the reason why they didn't want to... uh, go all in on this year, but I don't know why they decided to give up players with a few years of control. Josh Bell, really more of a salary dump type of a trade, and they got a prospect back um, as well, and Gene Segura, who they immediately released. But um, it looks like this is the Twins division win because the Guardians have kind of given up, honestly. Um, It would take a Herculean performance from Jose Ramirez, um, and Hercules is not 5'10", so I don't really think that will happen, but love Jose Ramirez, still think he's the best third baseman in baseball. I just don't think... There's anybody on this planet who could carry this team uh, to making up a four and a half game deficit to the Twins, despite the fact that the Twins aren't even that good themselves. But the Guardians three and seven in their last ten, the Twins five and five in their last ten, but have won four in a row after sweeping the Diamondbacks. That gives them a four and a half game advantage over the Guardians. Then you got the Tigers, who were nine games back. They traded most of their assets, but didn't give up any of the big bullpen guys. No Alex Lange trades, no Jason Foley trades, uh, no Tyler Holton trades, and also didn't give up Eduardo Rodriguez. So I guess they really only gave up Michael Lorenzen. Um, but then the White Sox, they up until the end of the deadline were, were selling, uh, which is what they should be doing. They are 23 games under 514 back in the division. Uh, but look, they were, it's reported that the Dodgers were even asking about Dylan Cease up until the last few minutes of the deadline. That would have been really the last piece that they honestly could have traded other than Luis Robert Jr. Although if you traded Luis Robert Jr. and Dylan Cease, I, I don't really know. I don't really know where you go from there at that point. I mean, they, they would have traded away their entire roster at that point, uh, having already traded away Lance Lynn, Joe Kelly, Jake Berger. Um, the the list just goes on and on. I can't even remember half the players they traded at this point because they just traded so many different guys um, off the roster. And the fact of the matter is, uh, as a result of that, their lineup is definitely not in the best position, and uh, they're not really looking to compete, but they already weren't competing in the first place. Oh, yeah, that's the other guy, Lucas Giolito, of course, and Reynaldo Lopez in that same trade to the Angels. And then you have the Royals, who uh, went on a seven-game winning streak. I I will give them credit for that. There was a point where they were the only team without a loss in August. That point was yesterday. Um, But now, seven and three in their last ten, still have the worst run differential in all the American leagues, excluding that one team that might or might not be in Oakland. All right, uh, let's move over to the American League West. As I said, many debuts being made this week for the Rangers, starting with Jordan Montgomery. I talked about his debut. 
Uh, Max Scherzer had a rough start to his debut with the White Sox um, and had a rough start with his press conference by just throwing the Mets under the bus, but that's not the first time he's thrown a former team under the bus, so that's not really that surprising. Um, But they did end up winning that start. He came back, pitched well in the rest of the game after giving up three in the first inning, Um, and the Rangers overall have won six in a row. Uh, So it looks like going all in at the deadline rejuvenated that team. Uh, The other thing that helps is this guy named Corey Seager came back from the injured list. Kind of helps your offense a little bit when a guy can come back. And the first thing he does off the IL is it's a two-run home run uh, to take in that that Verlander, or sorry, in that Scherzer start actually, where they were down three to nothing. And all of a sudden Seager jolt of energy off the IL and makes it three to two instead. Uh, Obviously, as I said, they went on to win that game. I, I can't say enough about Corey Seager's season. I, I feel like I feel so bad for him that he's not on the Dodgers anymore because he would be running away with NL MVP if he had played an extra 10, 15 games and if he wasn't in the same league as Shohei Otani. Uh, but unfortunately, he did get injured twice. That was his second stint on the IL. He did just come back pretty early from it. But at the same time, can't get injured twice and win an MVP, especially when you have a guy who is double the value because he's pitching and hitting and he has been injured all year. Uh, Then you have, except for skipping a few starts, I should mention that. Then you have the Astros. They have won one in a row, but they're six and four in their last 10. A lot of hot teams in this division in one really cold team. Um, But the Astros, just two and a half back of the Rangers. They continue their chase. The the Rangers really distance themselves a little bit with their winning streak over the weekend and before that. But the Astros staying within a three-game margin after the fact that the Rangers had such an aggressive deadline, getting Austin Hedges, getting... Uh, Scherzer getting uh, Jordan Montgomery, getting Chris Stratton as the as a bullpen piece as well. They made so many moves and have carried that momentum into their on on the field play. And yet at the same time, the Astros are still only two and a half games back after all that. So we might see the Astros catch the Rangers by the end of the season. It'll be an interesting battle. Definitely, in my opinion, the best divisional race to watch um, in terms of entertainment value. Uh, maybe the central race is good as well, just because of chaos and three teams involved, but and, and just all the different storylines that are going on there. Um, but this one, definitely in terms of two top-of-the-line teams that are actually, I think, going to be in a chase down to the end of the season, I, I think this is probably the one to watch out for. And then you have the Mariners, who, by the way, are inserting themselves in that chase. More wins than any team in the central. More wins than the Yankees, more wins than the Red Sox. They are the first team out of the wild card race, or sorry, out of the wild card uh, position right now. They are definitely in the race. Uh, they are eight and two in their last ten. They have won five games in a row, and that puts them at just two and a half games back of the Blue Jays for a playoff spot. Uh, I'm trying to see if these two teams play each other down the stretch. Unfortunately for the Mariners, they do not. Um, but still, the Mariners will have their chance to catch the Blue Jays. Uh, you look at the stretches that they have coming up. The Blue Jays have a stretch where they play the Cubs, the Phillies, the Reds, and Orioles back-to-back-to-back. To back to back. Um, and then, obviously, some divisional opponents at the end of the season. They also play the Rangers right before they play all divisional opponents to end the year, which are mostly games against the Rays and the Yankees. Meanwhile, you look at the Mariners' division, and no offense to the Angels, but I, I think at this point I'd maybe rather play them than play the Yankees. It, it's a hard call. Um, but the Mariners... They have a series against the Royals coming up. They have a series against the White Sox coming up. They have another series against the Royals. They have a series against the A's. Uh, they end the season, uh, or excuse me, not end the season, but they they play the A's near the end of the season as well. They do end the series Ranger or end the season Rangers Astros Rangers, which is going to be very tough, um, and also a Dodger series thrown in there as well. But I do think 
when you look at those schedules, I feel like the Mariners might be able to catch the Blue Jays depending on how they play because the Blue Jays have been horrid in the AL East all year long. Maybe that Red Sox sweep is turning that around, but the Mariners are definitely the only team that's a legit challenger uh, to the AL wildcard. And that is as a result of the team I'm about to talk about completely falling off the face of the earth. The Angels made the most moves at the deadline, got Randall Gritchick, got CJ Cron, got Lucas Giolito. Uh, the list goes on and on. I'm not naming all the trades. I don't really care. They are on a six-game losing streak. And the funny thing about that streak is that it started on deadline day. They're 2-8 and eight in their last 10. They are seven games back of a playoff spot, and they would have to leapfrog the Red Sox, the Yankees, and the Mariners, and then one of the teams who were actually in the playoffs. There is no way. I mean, this is the thing. They were on a good streak because they were playing a light schedule. Um, I appreciate... And I admire them for going all in on their last chance to keep Shohei Otani because the fact of the matter is, this franchise is irrelevant if they lose him. But the problem was, they banked a lot of their uh, a lot of their stock in the season off of. Yes, they played. Okay, fine, they played the Dodgers and the Astros before. But if you really look at this, they got swept by the Padres. They got swept by the Dodgers going into the All Star break. The Astros took two of three from them. And they went all in because they swept the Yankees, who were injured and bad. They beat the the Pirates two out of three, and that's honestly not that great of a result. And then they got three games in a row off the Tigers. They went all in off of that, and as a result, made early trades. Then the Blue Jays took two of three from them. Then they ran in the gauntlet that is the Braves, and the Braves took two of three. And then the Mariners went on the road and swept them in a four-game series. And that really, really put the distance um, between those two teams. You look at it going into the weekend— the Mariners were sitting at 56 and 52. The Angels were sitting at 56 and 53. Now all of a sudden, one of them is a game under 500. One of them is eight games above. The Mariners just opened up a massive, massive hole in the wild card standings. And when you look at it, two series this weekend might have decided the playoff picture very early on. The Blue Jays going into the weekend, two games ahead of the Red Sox and sweeping them to make that a five-game deficit. And the Mariners going into the weekend right with the Angels, and then now ending up four and a half ahead of them. Those are the differences you look at by the end of the season um, in terms of how a team makes the playoffs and how a team misses the playoffs. And it doesn't get any easier for the Angels now uh, as they play the Giants who are hungry in a division race of their own, then they play the Astros, then they play the Rangers, then the Rays, then the Reds. Um, So it doesn't get easier at all, and they just don't have the roster to hold up Giolito's first, second start, I should say. His first start was pretty good, but his second start for them wasn't very good either. Uh, but if you want to talk about wasn't very good, look no further than the Oakland A's. They're 32-80. and 80. Um, They made no, uh, they didn't make any acquisitions at the deadline. They made a lot of selling off trades, though. Um, they gave away Jace Peterson. They gave away Sam Mole. And they would have given up more players, but they don't have any good players. So that's not really possible to do. But they are four and six in their last 10. So, I mean... They can put up a banner for being better than half of the AL Central in their last 10 games and better than the Angels in their last 10 games if they feel like it. Okay, let's move on to the National League and start with the East. Yeah, this isn't much of a race anymore, so I'm probably not going to spend too much time on this. Um, but the Braves, they're in first place. Uh, as I said, their uh, their best record uh, chances are a little bit in danger. The Orioles are making a push for that, but at the same time, First team to 70 wins earlier this week, 70 and 39 on the season. Uh, could reach a franchise record uh, in wins if they are able to kind of keep going at the end of the season. But to be quite honest with you, 
there's a good chance this team ends up like last year's Dodgers team. I don't, I'm not going to say that they're going to lose to the Phillies in, in the NLDS again, like the Dodgers did with the Padres last year, losing to a team in their division. But I'm starting to see that I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that they're falling apart. They're playing ridiculous baseball still, but six and four in their last 10, they lost a series to the Cubs. When you get into a shootout with them, if you can actually win that, you can beat them pretty easily because they do have their down games like every team does every once in a while. And when they do that, that is when you have to be able to beat them. Obviously, uh, the running game changes have really, really benefited them. Ronald Acuna has like 50 stolen bases already. Um, and they are also on pace to break the home run record. But the Dodgers kind of did the same thing last year, got all the way up to 111 wins and looked really unstoppable. But all of a sudden... The bullpen starts to fall apart. Some of the starters don't have good starts. And just like that, they were out of the playoffs. Just a few games with bad hits or bad stats with runners in scoring position. And all of a sudden it can be over that quickly. Um, So you never know what could happen. I'm not suggesting that the Braves shouldn't be the favorites. I'm not suggesting that they aren't the favorites. I'm not suggesting that if you asked me to give you a pick right now, I wouldn't pick the Braves because I would pick the Braves. But at the same time, I will say I would have picked the Dodgers last year on August 6th. And I also would have told you that watching them, it feels like it's starting to slip away. I don't feel it as strongly with the Braves, and I think that they did enough at the deadline uh, to secure their bullpen, give themselves many options out there. But I, I still feel like there is potential for that to happen. Maybe the long grind of the regular season kind of turning around after a while. In the same way that the Rays were so far out ahead of everybody else at the beginning of the season and through the middle of the season, but then all of a sudden have hit kind of a rough patch and now aren't even in first in their division. Um, but outside of that, uh, they are 6-4 and four in their last 10. There are two other teams who are 6-4 and four in their last 10. One of them are the Philadelphia Phillies. They are tied with the Giants for the top wild card spot in the National League at 61-51. and 51. And then the Marlins are a half game back of Chicago and Cincinnati, who were tied for the last wild card spot. We'll get to that conversation in a second because that's a real interesting one. Um, but they are 3-7 and seven in their last 10. They have lost four in a row completely collapsing, probably going to finish under 500 at the end of the season. They're just not playing great baseball right now. Um, Speaking of not playing great baseball, the Mets have lost six in a row. They are 50 and 61. And there is now a conversation to be had about will the Nationals finish ahead of the Mets? They are only one and a half games apart. Um, The Nationals have won four in a row. They are also six and four in their last 10. While the Mets have lost six in a row, I mean, I I don't think anybody really cares about who's fourth and who's fifth in the National League East, but at the same time, it just goes to show you how disappointing of a season it's been for the Mets. Um, And the Nationals may be starting to get some momentum into next season with their young core. All right, let's move over to your favorite division in the National League, the Central, just like the American League. Yeah, except for this one is... A little interesting. Well, I actually don't think this division is that terrible. I just don't think there are any World Series contenders here. It's actually a very interesting division, unlike the AL Central, um, which is in a class of its own for boringness. The Brewers are 60-53. and 53. They have taken the division lead, but they are 3-7 and seven in their last 10, and all of a sudden, that has opened the door for the Cubs or the Reds to step up and run through the gates and take first place. Unfortunately, the Reds have lost six in a row as well. Or, sorry, they are 3-7 and seven in their last 10 as well. That's what they have in common with the Brewers, and they've lost six in a row. So they are not seizing that opportunity at all. But all of a sudden, the Cubs, after beating down on the Reds earlier this week, Sweeping the Reds, I should say, or actually, I think that was a four-game series. Yeah, the Reds took game one on Monday, 6-5, to five, but then the Cubs went on to win the next game, 20-9, to nine, win the third game of the series, 16-6, to six, and then win the final game of the series, 5-3, to three, and then all of a sudden, 
by taking the series over the weekend over the Braves, this team ends up tied with the Reds for the final wildcard spot. I thought it would take a lot longer for the Cubs to get there, but eventually they would. They're here already, and to be quite honest with you, Arizona looks terrible, Cincinnati looks terrible, Miami looks terrible. Those are the teams they're tied with, and they're right behind them. Maybe the Padres are the biggest challenger to the Cubs at this point, and they're three games back, so there's some ground to make up for them. Um, the Cubs are honestly look like they're, they are going to be that third wild card at this point. If they're able to keep up this level of play, which they will be because their offense is legit and it came to play. Jamer Candelario has been great uh, since they have acquired him. Uh, Jose Quas has made a few nice appearances out of the bullpen for them. A really small deadline for them, but staying patient and waiting to the last minute to see if they should sell and then deciding, you know what, we're not selling has been a great decision for the Cubs they are in a weak division. They recognized it, and they've seized their opportunity. Frankly, I said they could be they they'll get the third wild card. There's a pretty good chance they actually just win the division instead. Um, but we'll see what happens with the Cubs. Definitely one of the hottest teams in baseball, if not the hottest. I think they are the best team since the All Star break. They're seven and three in their last ten, uh, and like I said, just beat the Braves in the weekend series. Then, as I said, you have the Reds, fifty nine and fifty five, uh, lost six in a row. You have the Pirates, who are nine games back at 50 and 61. And then you have the Cardinals, who are 49 and 64, 11 games back. Going to start to talk about the bottom of the divisions less because at this point, it's an overplayed narrative how disappointing the Cardinals are, how disappointing the Mets are, how disappointing the Pirates are after their start. Uh, It's time to talk about the playoffs because we are almost here. I mean, we're getting down to the point of the season where that is what we should be talking about. Instead of saying it's too early to be watching games in other divisions, The Giants have played 112 games. The Cubs have played 112. Cincinnati's played 114. It is time to talk about the playoffs. We are are here, so uh, we only got about 50 games left, so it is time to start watching those other teams in your team's division, hoping that random teams come and beat them, rooting for the Mariners on a random Tuesday when they're playing the Giants if you're a Dodgers fan. That type of thing, it's that time right now. Um, And it looks like the Cubs have come to play in crunch time, and unfortunately for the Pirates and the Cardinals, Probably not going to get many air, much airtime at all for the la- for the last few weeks of the season. Okay, let's move on to the National League West. There are a lot of teams who are going to get airtime for very different reasons in this division. Uh, the Dodgers, for really opening up a lead in this division that I didn't expect them to, honestly. Uh, this is the probably the wildest chase I've ever seen. Uh, there was a point in time where the Diamondbacks were leading uh, the NL West, and if you look at it now, it just looks like there was a regular Dodgers-dominated season um, with the Giants kind of tough on their heels. But the fact of the matter is, July 1 standings in MLB, it was Arizona who was leading this division. Um, but now all of a sudden, it's the Dodgers who have made up that deficit and more Arizona just one game above 500 at this point. It's not even like they've just surrendered the division lead. They're out of a wild card spot at this point. So not a strong showing from them at all. Uh, and those standings, like I was talking about, If you go back to July 1, the Dodgers were three games back, the Giants were three and a half back, the Padres were 11 and a half back, of Arizona, who was 50 and 34, keep that number in mind, the Texas Rangers were 50 and 33, Baltimore was 48 and 33, so they had a better record than Baltimore, they were a half game back of Texas' record on July 1, and all of a sudden, you look at the standings today, and they are 57 and 56, which, look, I'm not very good at math, but that is 7 and 24 since the start of July. 
just a massive collapse by the Diamondbacks. And really, I think they're lucky they're not more games out of a wild card spot at this point. 7-24 and 24 is brutal. They are only one game above 500. Uh, now one and a half games out of the wild card spot. But I skipped over first place a little bit. I skipped over second place. So I'll go back to them after I talk about the fact that Arizona has also lost six in a row and have a negative 18 run differential as well. Uh, the Giants, they are 6-4 and four in their last 10. But after the Dodgers swept the A's in the middle of the week, the Giants just got swept by the A's. And all of a sudden, that opened up an opportunity, despite the Dodgers having a disappointing loss on Saturday night, for the Dodgers to gain a game and a half on the Giants over the last three days cumulatively um, and go to 64-46 and 46 on the season, the second-best record in the National League with a 6-4 and four in their last 10 mark. Uh, Lance Lynn has made two quality starts for the Dodgers uh, by the literal definition of the quality start metric and also just by me saying they are good starts. Um, Ahmed Rosario has hit a home run, has hit a few doubles as well. Kike Hernandez had a double today on Sunday Night Baseball. The Dodgers' small additions have actually worked out pretty well. Um, Joe Kelly has had his fair share of uh, moments. I don't really, I won't really say he's been dominant pitching, but he's done what Joe Kelly's supposed to do on a team. I'll just leave it at that. He's played the Joe Kelly role perfectly, um, like a Duke basketball player. But then you have the Giants, who are four games back of the Dodgers at 61 to 51. But credit to them because they are leading the wild card race. Uh, their their playoff position looks pretty secure at this point. They have such a big lead over those teams that are really all struggling outside of Chicago. Um, and I don't see many teams catching them. They're six games up on the Padres, who are now 10 games back in the division, only two games under 500. Well, look, the Padres fans, they were saying that, yes, they can catch Arizona. Well, they were right. They are going to catch Arizona. But the problem is they're going to catch them for third place, not for second place or for first or for a wild card spot. So that might not be very useful, but they've still played better recently. Um, I'll give them credit for that. And we'll see if they can maybe squeak out a split against the Dodgers in that weekend series and enter their next series one game under 500 and two and a half or two games out of the race. Um, they're going to enter an interesting part of their schedule. I won't necessarily say tough because I don't really know how to rate the Diamondbacks right now, but two against the Mariners, three against the D-backs, three against the Orioles, and then three against the Diamondbacks, and then Marlins and the Brewers. So again, three really hard teams to, three hard series to evaluate when you consider the Marlins and the Diamondbacks twice. Um, but the Padres... Could end up losing a lot of those games. Could end up winning a lot of those games. It's actually really hard to say for me. And then at the bottom of the division, you have the Colorado Rockies at 44 and 67, 20 and a half games back, uh, four and six in their last 10. But look, they are there are three teams who are a major factor in the wild card race. Um, Arizona's really playing themselves out of that status. But if they can get it back together by the end of the season, they're not going to be that far off once their slump ends, if it does end. Um, and then the Padres, they just need to get a little hotter than they've been over the last few weeks, and all of a sudden they could be making some noise in the race as well. And obviously you have the Dodgers, the team that has dominated this division for years, and the Giants, who are the only teams to break that domination at any point in time. Yeah, these standings are a little weird, given the Dodgers have played two less games than everybody else. They actually are, you know, when you look at their, their lead over everybody else, it's, it's bigger in the loss column than it than it is uh, in, in number of games, just because they've played two games or three games less than some other teams. So uh, they start making up some of those games and have the chance to extend the lead on, on off days. All right, that wraps our look back at Major League Baseball. It also wraps this edition of the 4th and 24 podcast. Please be sure to check out our next podcast, which will be on Friday, August 11th, where we will have our third college football preview podcast, this time talking about the Big Ten and the SEC. I'm sure we'll talk a little expansion talk or conference realignment, maybe. Uh, maybe some more news will happen between them. But in the meantime, please be sure to check out Patrick's additional content 
including his Major League Baseball power rankings that are updated every Wednesday, his picks for next weekend's games and series that will be posted, as always, on Thursdays, and his predictions for the entire college football season, which has already been posted. All of that on our website, 4thand24.com. That's the number four, T-H-A-N-D, the number 24.com. Thank you for listening.